Sometimes it just occurs to me, I wonder what would happen if I just sat there for another 10 minutes. You'd probably throw a hymn book at me. Welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. We're so glad that you're here. And I have a bunch of announcements this morning, so bear with me. This is Missions in July. Did you notice that it's Missions in July? Uh, we take up a special offering the whole month of July for missions. So if you want to contribute, just designate it um, on... Linda, can we write it on the check or does it... Okay, it can be written on the check or there's envelopes in the pew. And we do not pass a collection plate or communion plates. We have a time for communion. We come up here for it and for the morning offering we have a time when you can go in the back and there's a box in the foyer um, we're changing up the schedule on Wednesdays so we're going to start at 6:30 prayer time and then the missionary of the week will come on at 6:45, and that gives the missionary a longer period of time to share what's on their heart and we have Josh Tancrodo coming up this Wednesday, he's great. Kevin Godin, Steve McAllister, he's the head of AIT, he'll be the third. And then Blake Kenham, a Mississippi boy up in the frigid north of Manitoba, he'll come on too. You guys don't see it because it's unseen work. But at the risk of overlooking anybody, so you'll have to practice forgiveness, it is Communion Sunday. I just wanted to call out a few people. We have people working on the grounds constantly. Eric is, is a servant, uh, I want to say monster, but that's just not the right word. He, he, he gets her done. And Janet's been helping. She uh, adopts plants that we pull up and transplants them. Julia's been doing work. A guy who's going to get mad at me because he's humble, or as I said in Sunday school class, Jay Vernon McGee would say he's humble. Neil is an electrician that he's been up in the hot attic for hours running new lines, so it's just not a mess of extension cables and plug-ins. We're actually doing it right. And uh, he's very gentle demeanor, except when he's working. And then it's, Andy, get me this. Andy, get me that. Up and down the ladder, up and down the ladder. And it's like, Neil, couldn't you just say you wanted coffee and a donut before I went down? And Oh, it just wears me out. And then somebody had to climb up on somebody's shoulders to hang these beautiful banners. So thanks to Linda and Jerry for doing that. Um, Sunday school adult ministry training class. We're going to have one more Sunday with Henry's teaching about how to listen Expositionally, He's doing a great job in the class. And for the next session, it's 1 Peter. And it gives you one more week to write out 1 Peter by hand in notebooks that I have. Uh, we have some visitors. Ashley, former good pastor, or nay, good pastor Meals is here. She's downstairs, but her whole family's here in the back. So we're glad you guys are here. And in front of them is a, a guy I haven't seen in a while. Ethan, welcome back. You know, 
Here's something else that's very important. Ladies, I, we need help. Children's church, Erin is rotating off pretty soon because her babies do. So Jackie's asked me to beg, plead, cajole, and pay for volunteer. I can't pay because it's a volunteer, but we need ladies to help in children's church. That's during the service. We can have children up here during the service, and some families decide to send them downstairs. But it's two weeks out of every month, and it doesn't take a lot of prep time. She said something like 10 hours, or maybe 10 minutes, one of those. Um, but please see Jackie. Raise your hand. Raise your hand, Jackie. See Jackie for all the details. It, what did I say? For, okay, okay. Say that again. Okay. Okay. So see Jackie for the details. Um, on a serious note, God has given us the ministry of raising up the next two generations. Pastor's old enough, so he calls younger men like Jeremy and Ethan the next generation. He includes me in that for maturity level. Um, but we have all these babies and young toddlers and young kids here that we can pour our lives into them. And I go downstairs every now and then and poke my head in and look and see what's going on. Ladies, I hope God puts it on your heart to, to, build, in, to build into these kids because they're, they're our future in a sense. And I believe that's all the announcements for this morning. Hard act to follow, that's for sure. Now, Andy, I didn't hear that, so uh, you're going to, the Henry's class is going to continue one more week. One more so week. my discipleship prog project oh, yeah. will continue. Oh, well, I'll have to find something to say. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you something to say. <laughs> so the young adults uh, meet with me one more time in the cottage, and then follow, that following week you'll go to Andy's class. They're going through First Peter, and if you guys want to prepare for that, Andy's going to have a, an excellent class for us then in, uh, not next week, but the week after. Go ahead and look in your worship folder. I just want to prepare us then to, to worship here. We will have communion in just a bit. I'm going to give us a time to, prepare, to pray and prepare your heart to receive Holy Communion with Christ. We'll be singing this. Uh, Blake will come and lead us to sing, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, 224. I think, Blake, what we'd like to do, if you don't mind, is I'll, we'll go through the first two verses and uh, think through it in a meditative way. It's one of my favorite songs. I, uh, I asked him if we can do this one, uh, just to think about Christ and the way this is poetically put. It, it's written by William Cooper. It, look, it's, it looks like Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. He was a man that struggled a lot in his... Um, assurance of faith if you will and one of the things that really helped him uh, he he was um, told to write hymns and 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 he left us with a lot of great hymns and this is one of them that we still sing today and to focus on Christ who washes away our sin and, and when we come together for Holy Communion that's what we're thinking about 
We're doing this in remembrance of what Christ has done and these lasting effects. Um, how I gave out a book, I think, last week on how, to, how do you, how do you um, deal with your guilt. Well, here's how you do it. It's through Christ. And um, it, it's a great time of remembrance. And these hymns will help prepare. And so then I think after we take the communion, uh, then we'll, uh, we'll sing the last two him verses three and four as a kind of transition so in the first one we'll just say seated to to sing it in a meditative way after we take communion then we'll rise for three and four if you got all that right all right so and then we'll go on and this this morning uh, Blake's included for us a number of songs that remind us about God's goodness to our particular country and I put on here blessed is the nation in the front whose God is the Lord some 33:12, And you can think about that, well, really, could God bless America given all of our wickedness? And, and I understand that perspective, but he has. We would be much more evil without his providence, without his blessing to us. We, as God's people, we, we pray for his blessings to be poured out. It isn't because we deserve any of it. None of us do. It's because God is gracious and God is merciful. And so I hope that's your prayer today, too, uh, to pray for God's blessing. And how, how would it come about? Well, if his people will humble themselves and pray, seek his face, he will forgive our sin and heal our land. God is a good and gracious God. And so we go to him and pray for his blessings to be upon us individually, to be upon the church, to our, our community, and beyond to our country. Pray for a great revival of repentance and faith. And, and may it begin with each of us individually. Let's go ahead and go to prayer and pray individually now to prepare our hearts to worship Christ. I'll give you a moment privately to pray, prepare your heart to receive communion, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning thinking of your goodness to us, your mercy, which endures forever, your love, which is beyond anything that we can imagine. And yes, the good gifts that you give us daily, every good gift comes from your hand. And may we recognize that. It isn't of our own doing. It is simply an expression of the grace and who you are. And so I pray that you will bless your people. Not bless us because we're worthy of your blessing, but you are a holy, righteous, and good, and gracious, and loving God. 
and you would mercifully grant to us blessings, and, and you have, and we've experienced them. I thank you for all the blessings that we have had in our life to this point and our dreams and hopes of days to come. Again, may, may they be focused on, on you and the good gifts that you have provided. I pray, Father, that you will call us to, to look to you and to respond in great thanksgiving and joy. I pray that you would suppress the counsel of the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers. I pray through the proclamation of the beauty and glory of Christ, may it outshine that darkness. I pray, Father, for your word, the law of your word, to, to be expounded even this day among your people. Sink deep into our hearts, and may it overflow into various conversations that we might have throughout the week. I think of some that I've had a privilege to interact with and talk to and point to the glory of your grace. I pray, Father, that you will use that to awaken the sinner and call them to be saints and call them to see and behold the glory of who and the majesty of who you are. I pray, Father, that our, our life would be directed towards your goodness both day and night. I pray for your people that we would be like a tree that's planted by streams of living water that yields fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in our life, love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, and many more. May it blossom forth. I pray and thankful, Lord, that we will not wither, we will not fail because of you, because of your faithfulness, your oath and guarantee of this promise. But, oh, we pray for the wicked and those that are in rebellion against you. May they come to life, a newness of life. May they stand then with the righteousness of Christ as we will before you in the, your presence of fullness of joy. May today be a great blessing among your people and among your land. May Christ be exalted and may we continually look forward to that blessed hope and soon return of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. We'll take your hymn books and turn to number 224. Remain seated, as Pastor mentioned, and let's just focus on these first two verses of There is a Fountain as we prepare our hearts for communion. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day a fountain will be opened to wash away sin and impurity.
to come now and prepare the table. You can look in your worship folder. I, I won't read all this text, but just a reminder of what this is. We're doing this in remembrance of Christ, both of these elements. And how we'll receive it today, if you are a believer, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and you're obedient in your faith and baptism and expression of that, then you come and receive. You don't have to be a member of the church here, this local body, but you need to be a member of the body of Christ. And we want to worship Christ together in Holy Communion in remembrance of him. And so how we'll do this is this side first will stand when the music is playing here in just a moment, and then come and get both elements, and then walk around, return back to your seat, and, and wait, and we'll take this together, then the middle, and then this aisle too. This aisle, if you don't mind, to help with the flow, just go backwards from, uh, you'll get the picture around that way. Any case, so then we'll all receive this communion to, together. So uh, let's go ahead and bless the elements, and Andy, I would like to ask you to bless the elements. here if you'll stand come get both elements and then return
two elements here, as you note, of course, the, the bread and, and the cup. The bread symbolizes Jesus' body, and the cup is his blood. The body of Christ reminds us of his life. Jesus, I, could, I suppose, could have just come and, as an adult, died and gone on. But God chose to take on the flesh of a human and live all of our experiences. As we've learned and will learn continually through for the next few weeks through Hebrews about Christ who is our mediator, our great high priest. He can sympathize, it says, with our weaknesses. And the reason so is that he has truly walked in our shoes. This is an incredible thing to think about. God actually experienced what we go through. He experienced it in its greatest extent. In the temptation in the wilderness, it was a real temptation. But it proved that Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. All of us would bend and break at some point, And we have, and we do. Christ never did. He fulfilled all righteousness. He's the only one that ever did. He's the only one that ever will. It is why this righteousness will only come through Christ's merit and not yours. So we receive this element, as Christ has called us to do, to do this in remembrance of him. Standing before God, then, is brought about by wearing the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who has perfected all. But yet, there may be an accusation against one of us, because in our life, what will we do with our guilt? And as this hymn speaks of this fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Indeed. It's, it's really unimaginable, isn't it, that you would lose them all. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus that we might be worthy of condemnation. The wages of sin is death. Christ, beloved, died. He died to take our sin on his body on that tree, and therefore removing any guilt because it has been atoned for by Jesus Christ. Take this in remembrance of him. We'll stand now together to sing praises to this dying lamb in verse 3 from 224 as Blake comes to lead us.
And I pray that you can sing this out. Stand together with us and sing this out in great rejoicing concerning his precious blood, which will never lose its power. the battle hymn of the republic for he has put everything under his feet 1 Corinthians 15 27 we'll sing the first, fourth and fifth verses of 645 1, 4 and 5 
to 646. 646, my country, tis of thee. Righteousness exalts a nation. Proverbs 14.34. Our scripture reading today is Acts 10, verses 34 through 48, uh, New Testament, right? Uh, it's found on page 919 of the Pew Bible. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. I know I say that often, and Jeremy just seems to know those passages of scripture that I love so much, and I'm just thrilled to read this today. Let's catch up on what's going on at this point when we get to verse 34. We actually have two stories that are merging into one lesson. The Roman centurion Cornelius, he was at home. He was waiting calmly, expectantly. He was with his family, his servants, probably friends. He was waiting patiently. Why? Because he was a soldier. He was trained to receive orders and to give commands. As a God-fearing Gentile, as best he could, he served by giving alms to the poor, to the needy. He prayed to God daily. 
Then one day, suddenly, an angel was standing in front of him and told him that God had seen his works and had heard his prayers and was answering them. The angel issued a direct order to this centurion, and therefore Cornelius received that order and sent others to fulfill it. And the order was to go get Simon Peter. So now he was waiting with his family and his friends. Now Peter, in the meantime, this is the second part of the story, he's just had this dream that we heard about last week where the great sheet filled with animals comes down from heaven. And some of the animals were unclean. And the voice from heaven said, kill and eat. And he said, no. (laughs) He said, I cannot, I, I will not. I've never done that before. The voice, however, continued. What God has cleansed, no longer consider it as common or unholy. Now, the Lord had to send that dream to him three times. What is it with Peter that you have to tell him something three times before he'll actually listen? But he listened. He was still perplexed, but nevertheless, when Cornelius' men came to get him, he went with them. So to Simon Peter, when he entered the house of the Roman centurion Cornelius, and he saw these expectant, hopeful God-fearing Gentiles awaiting his words from the Lord, all of his former arguments about what or who might be unclean in the sight of God ceased. For God was graciously opening heaven's door to all who would come to the risen Savior. So Simon Peter shared this message of grace Acts 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Then they asked him to remain with them for some days. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing and wonderful, life-affirming, grace-affirming story of reaching out to all the world. As Christ himself said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Father, we thank you for this message of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for a church that believes in the gospel and firmly and faithfully preaches the words of God to us. May we be receptive today to hear, to be moved of the Holy Spirit, to see how we might further the kingdom by putting into practice those things that we learn this very morning. And I pray, Father, for your blessing, uh, blessing upon the offering. And I pray also that you will touch our hearts during this, this great missions in July month, yes. that you will lay upon each of us uh, a burden, a thought of what we might give to flesh and blood people who are preaching the gospel all around the world. May we further that ministry through our gifts. Bless now this service as we continue in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Let's stand and sing America the Beautiful, 641.
Lake Ladies Church for helping us to worship Christ in song. And God has indeed blessed. His grace is new, His mercy every day. That that the we have this day is his gift. All of these good gifts ultimately come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You're going to discover that, and to the degree that I can unpack it with the time that remains, in Hebrews chapter 8. I invite you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 8. And really, I'm introducing this section, and I'll see what I can get through this morning. The initial focus continues on Jesus Christ, his mediatorial work, that is, his function as a priest, specifically better. He's a better priest. He's a better mediator. And whether you put yourself in that role or go to any other source, whatever you have is inferior. It is Christ you need to look to. And this preacher in Hebrews makes that clear. This, as I've mentioned, if you haven't been with us in, in the book of Hebrews, I see it as an exemplar of first century preaching. I think it actually comes from Paul, recorded by Luke, and then presented to us in this format by the Holy Spirit. He would keep this for the church. He's specifically addressing, if you remember, these Hebrews in their circumstance and situation. They have this desire to be affected by the culture of their day, to follow what everyone else was doing. And in their specific case, it was Judaism. The temple was still standing. They had the rituals that were going on. And... The temple, by the way, was incredibly beautiful, particularly at this time. It had been rebuilt. It was glorious. All all the garments and the vestments and and all of the trappings that go along with it, all all of it was beautiful. It, It had a purpose and a point, as we'll read in Hebrews, that God had told them to do it this way. It gave them specific instructions, and if you read through the Old Testament, you'll You'll read about it in the book of Leviticus. It about wears you out with all the details that are given. It was done specifically to portray and to picture in a physical way that which you can't see. It's invisible. Certainly, it's not going to do it perfectly. It's going to function as a shadow. Just as we might walk along and you see a shadow on the ground. It isn't the real thing, but it has a semblance of it, right? It lacks the detail. It really, as detailed as it might be, it's still lacking of what is reality. It kind of pictures it in some degree, in an obscure way, but yet you can kind of tell with that shadow. Well, that's what's going on here, too, with all the trappings of Judaism. The reality is Jesus Christ. And you about scratch your head and say, well, why would you, if Jesus Christ is the priest, our great high priest, why, why would you go to anyone else? 
In fact, they could tell that there was a lot of corruption going on in their religious systems and practices. Jesus had to overturn the tables more than once. So why would you want to go back to that? Surely we wouldn't do that. (laughs) Yet we do. By way of application, certainly you can examine in your own life. What, what, What other source would you go to other than Jesus Christ? And even to yourself is an idolatrous act. And so here is a call, once again, this preacher, as he's focusing on Jesus Christ in particular, his mediatorial work, he's exalting Christ, the supremacy of Christ throughout the whole sermon here in the book of Hebrews, as we know it. He comes to this point after reminding the folks that Jesus is of a different order, a greater order, one that was prophesied about by David in Psalm 110. He is after the order of Melchizedek. It's a greater order. It has no beginning and it has no end. It it, it continues on forever. It, It was guaranteed by God by not only what he said, but also sealed it as an oath, a promise, a promise that is sealed by the Holy Spirit. You can't get any better mediator than Jesus Christ. And so he's going to introduce the next few chapters, 8, 9, and 10, which we'll flesh out in maybe next week or at least the week after in chapter 8 where he gets into this idea of a better covenant, agreement, or promise called the new covenant, which has superseded the old. It it isn't of the old, it didn't have any value it had no, no redemptive value in and of itself. It simply pointed to the one who is going to accomplish the redemption, and that one has come. That's Jesus Christ. When we took this communion cup, if you read on, he said, this is the blood of my covenant. That cup that he picks up from the table of the Passover which is a symbol of what is to come. That cup that he picks up that we drink and remember is called the cup of blessing. That is how you will be blessed. That is how anyone will be blessed, ultimately by the reality of Jesus Christ. These symbols point to that. Jesus would institute a symbol for us to continue to remember his atoning work. That fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That can only, in and of itself, can wash away all of your sin and remove the guilt that you have before God. The preacher wants to emphasize Christ in his work on our behalf as the mediator between God and man. To to mediate on that level, God, and then man, it would necessarily take someone from both sides, if you will. So Christ, God, comes from heaven to earth 
takes on the form of a servant, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, incarnate deity. The kids will sing soon, I hope, and I look forward to it. Immortal, invisible, God only was, light and accessible, hid from our eyes. My wife asked me to, to give a quick explanation of that. And, and, and my thoughts were drawn, and again, this is said poetically and for us to sing, but what's going on? This immortal, invisible God becomes visible in taking on the form of a servant. Read John 1, it says, He is light. In him is life, and the life is the light of the world. It's a good way to express who God is. The light shines, and the darkness doesn't overcome it. It can't fully understand it, but yet it isn't going to overcome it like light would shine and expel darkness. Both meanings are intended. This idea of being hidden from our eyes is, as John would, would express in John 1.14, that this, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And yet they didn't see the fullness of it. On the mount, they said, show us your glory. And Christ gave them a glimpse, and they fell down like dead man. And he had to revive them and tell them not to fear. You see, there's a sense in which the fullness of his glory couldn't be fully experienced and seen by us because we're sinful men. We don't have the capacity to be able to fully appreciate it in the state in which we currently exist. And this is why God will redeem his people and his church and take away their sin. And the eyes will no longer, our eyes, that's the problem, will no longer be scaled with sin. We'll be able to see the fullness of the glory of his grace and his goodness and who he is. Indeed, in his presence is the fullness of joy and pleasure like we've never experienced. Why would anyone go to any other fountain? Why would you seek anything other than Christ? Because you don't see him. And so we pray for a supernatural work of God's grace for you indeed to behold his glory. The glimpse even on this side of eternity that you might see comes about through the work of the Holy Spirit mediated through the proclamation of Christ. And so we go over this again and again about Christ and his mediatorial work. This preacher belabors it from the very beginning, even in now, and then he'll continue on and on because you can't get enough of Christ. And pray that you will see his glory. Pray that you will be enthralled by that and, and recognize his, his present ministry even now 
It, it isn't though he just did something and walked away. The preacher would remind us what Christ is doing right now. He was a priest here on earth. He came to save his people from their sin. He ministered to his people in absolute perfection. In chapter 7, as we left off last week, in, in verse 26, it, it described this one, who God incarnate, who walked among us. I think this description is talking about what was expressed in his earthly ministry. And you can read through this, uh, more about this in the Gospels. But, but he was said, verse 26 of chapter 7, he, this high priest, this Christ, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. In, in and of himself, if you remember last week, we, we emphasized he, he, he has no sin. He's innocent. He's the only innocent one among us. He, he's unstained in that he came into this world and did minister, and yet nothing clung to him. Satan had nothing on him. Satan has much on me, much for me to be shamed about. But Christ, there's no shame, there's no guilt. He's unstained, separated from sinners in that, yeah, he fellowship with sinners. He was a friend of sinners in that sense. But there was a distinction there that always was true. He was always the Holy One of God. He was always the innocent one, unstained. And then ultimately, after the resurrection, that is an exaltation in and of itself in earth. That, that's the exaltation. And then beyond that, he, he rises and, and ascends to heaven in bodily form, exalted above the heavens. Jesus took on this mediatorial role but his work continues he accomplished the the atonement for sin on his death on the cross but what's he been doing since then and what will he be doing in the future well here's what he's doing beloved he's continuing this office of priestly ministry, medi mediating on our behalf, the mediation that we would need to be united with God is accomplished continually by Jesus Christ. And this is what is being emphasized in this sermon in Hebrews. There are some critics who would say, well, why didn't he talk much about the resurrection? He does mention that kind of in passing. The only place you'll find it is in chapter 13, verse 20 that I found. And that's kind of in the benediction of this whole sermon. I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So, so he does mention the resurrection. But it's, it's not something that is emphasized here. So why not? He's not downplaying the resurrection. And that is preached through apostolic preaching quite a bit. 
But here, his emphasis is on the results of that resurrection. This continuing results. Not just that we in Christ will also be resurrected, but the results of it, his resurrection brings him into the heavenly places as we see, we'll see symbolically as he enters in the real holy place that is into heaven. And so therefore he must ascend. And so what is he doing in his ascension? What is he doing in the majesty on high? He is continually mediating on the behalf of his people right now. He continues as a priest, a living mediator between God and man right now. So he's better than any other that you might go to. Let's read it in its context, and I will just read the whole chapter. I only get through the first few verses, maybe down to verse 5 today, but I'd like to read this section entirely. So I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And it begins with this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Now you think I have long introductions, so he's got seven chapters on me. The point that we're trying to make is this. Here's the point. If you don't get anything else, get this. We have such a high priest. That's his point. See, that's the better build it up to it. Now he's going to say it again, and then he's going to unpack it in the chapters to come. Who's this high priest? Well, he describes him, one who is then seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That relates all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, doesn't it? A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, this is contrasting, he's now in heaven. If he was on earth, notice, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is, and here's the word, better. Since it's been acted on better promises... For the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It was not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. But they didn't continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. 
and they shall be my people. They shall not teach one another his neighbor, or each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Speaking in the New Covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, I pray that we'll get the point. That we'll get the point of what is being communicated in this text. May you, through the power of the Spirit, enlighten our minds to see the glory of Christ. And may our joy in him and his mediation on our behalf be that which provides great comfort, assurance, removes anxiety, creates a place of peace even in the midst of great disturbance, and great joy in times of difficulty, in distress and disease. May we always look to Christ knowing that he is looking to us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll unpack this with the time that I have, and I'll see what I get through. But essentially, here, in at least the first five verses, it draws our attention specifically to some aspects of Jesus Christ being the priest. It, it talks about his, the seat, the fact that he's seated. It talks about the, the sacrifices that he, he would give and the service that he is continually doing even now. Notice verse 1, it says the point that we're making is this. We have this high priest who's noted, one who is then said to be seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Remember, in the first chapter, I already had mentioned the, the idea that when Christ had made atonement, sin, it says then he sat down on the majesty on high, and here it's repeated again, this same idea of Jesus Christ sitting down. Specifically to those that were looking to the Levitical priesthood, their administration, they never sat down. There, there was no furniture in the tabernacle for them, that would be the tent, or the temple, that's the fixed structure, to actually sit down. They didn't sit. And in particularly the place where the atonement was made, which again, we already talked about, it's symbolic. There, there was some furniture in that room, the most holy place, which was guarded, if you will, by a curtain and restricted by who could actually enter. There was an ark of the covenant, it says, the, the covenant that God had made. In the, in the ark, it, it, it had a few items, had the law, it had the manna to remind them of that, of God's provision, his law, and then Aaron's rod that budded and God's mercy in, in granting to them the Aaronic priesthood and the blessings that came about by this symbolic mediation. On top of the ark is said to have a seat. But the priests didn't sit there. They brought in a basin of blood and sprinkled it on the seat. They didn't sit down. They wouldn't even presume to sit down. After all, this represented God. 
and the fullness of his presence in that particular room, it pictured the God symbolically on the very throne of God. So there's no priest that would walk in there and present the sacrifice and then take a seat for a while. (laughs) He did this in great fear and trembling. There's all kinds of stories about it. We don't know specifically how it all worked out. The bottom line is they were very fearful going in there, afraid that they may very well lose their life in the presence of God and so everyone else. And everyone was hoping this high priest would come back out alive. Wasn't a very mild and relaxing work. It was great fear and trembling in doing it. And he wouldn't sit down because he couldn't sit down because his work wasn't done. He had to continue sacrificing and continually to come. And I think that's the main point of this idea of being seated. But it also, that is Christ's work is done, his propitiation for sin is is done. This is why you cannot propitiate for your own sin and do whatever. It won't accomplish it, just like these Levitical priests couldn't accomplish it, and you can't do so either, but Christ has. So it's finished, and, and it's done. It's complete. It also points to his deity. Because every other priest wouldn't sit down because they, they, they wouldn't presume on God to, to sit on, on the, what represents, at the very least, his throne. This idea of the priest, our high priest then seated, shows that his work is sufficient. It then brings about what we would think of as theologically as satisfaction. God's wrath is appeased. This is why I quoted before, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Because whatever wrath would be expelled on those that are rebellious and disobedient to God, even those of us who struggle with sin in our life, God's wrath is not on his people. His wrath has been poured out on Jesus Christ. So, so don't bring about fear in your life because you're, you're, you're afraid that, that God's just going to somehow punish you. He hasn't. If you're in Christ, he's punished Christ. And it's finished. Now, he may bring about discipline, and the preacher in Hebrews will bring that up and will address it in time when that comes up. But, but that's not wrath. That, that is discipline to bring about life to bring about flourishing in your life like a parent would with their child. They're a good parent. There may be some that are mean and hateful and nasty and sinful. We understand that. But most parents would want to do those things that would bring about flourishing in the life of their children, right? So they discipline them. Why? Because they don't want them to run out in the street and get killed. They they don't want somebody to, to attack them or abduct them or something like that. So we put some restrictions, some discipline in their life. We don't want them to be disobedient to parents because we don't want them to be disobedient to God. So we teach them, don't be disobedient to your mom or dad. Respect elders. Respect those that are in authority. Why? All of those represent God and you teach them through discipline how to 
respect. Christ's work is sufficient. It appeased the very wrath of God to which we are all exposed. And at that point, I hope some of you break down and weep, at least on the inside. And recognize, for those that are in Christ, God is not angry at you. Your sins have been reconciled in him. You're in a whole different state. A state of the beloved. That's an expression of how Paul would often talk to those that are in the church, beloved of God. You can't imagine how beloved you are. Again, for those of us who are parents, and they may be grandparents, you know how much you care for your children and grandchildren. Maybe it's friends as well. Close people. Oh, you love them. You would sacrifice for them. You would die for them. This is, expresses how God is towards his people. As the father loves the son, and so he loves those that are in the son, in a beloved position, no longer exposed to his wrath, because Christ has borne that wrath, and he's seated. It's finished, and it's sufficient. Where is he seated? He's seated, noticed here, in the, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. This is an expression. It's intended to be that way. Don't, I think in the West, we have a tendency to try to be literalistic, you know, go beyond that. The whole point of this right hand is to express the position in which Christ now, the mediator, who has finished his work, who has appeased the wrath of God that would otherwise be rightly poured out against sinners. He is now at the right hand. It expresses, I think, primarily authority. It indicates a place of power. This high priest, sitting at the right hand of God, pictured that way, has ultimate power and authority over everything. Again, why you can't go anywhere else. This is why you can't embrace Islam. Hinduism. Secularism. Just just the world. Atheism. Because Christ is at the right hand of God. He has all authority. Jesus would tell even in his mediatorial state here on earth in John chapter 3 the father has loved the son and given all things into his hand here is the decretal will of God being then revealed in holy scripture if you remember as Jesus commissions his disciples to then go about and make more disciples by proclaiming Christ and then teaching everything that Christ had taught them, therefore making more disciples. You know how he begins that in Matthew, that familiar passage, go, passage, go therefore, 
preach the gospel to all nations? He begins it in verse 18 of Matthew 28. All authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It isn't just this priestly throne here on high in heaven to to rule over the heavenly domain. It is over the earthly domain right now. That's where he is seated with all authority. And some of our governmental leaders would be well to pay attention to that. We should call them, and humbly, as well as ourselves, and to recognize that Christ is an authority over all things. And this is why we respect the authorities that he put in place to the degree that they administer those things that bring about flourishing in life and are not directly opposed to God's will. Because ultimately Christ is in all authority. I was going to, I quoted a little bit from Psalm 1 just in my mind as I, as I prayed earlier. But Psalm 2 goes along with it. And speaking about Jesus Christ and the reign of his authority. And the psalmist would move forward and say, well, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is his anointed? It's this one, this priestly king in, at the right hand of the power. Yeah, there are many that would, object, would object to him. And, and they would say, let let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. In other words, we, we, we don't want to follow his instructions and his will, which, by the way, all of his instructions and will are to bring about that which will cause life and flourishing. The people don't want that because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They're just expressing the, expressing the evilness of their own heart to reject God and his will. So, so we, we don't want to be bound by his rules and obligations. We want our own freedom. Well, your own freedom is death. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Again, a poetic way to express you fool. You're not going to overcome. You're going to be crushed. He will speak to them then in his wrath. And, and, and that, that is the expression of those that are in rebellion. Again, as I mentioned, Christ is mediating on behalf of those that are subject to him, confess him as Lord. His wrath is not being poured out upon them. But you reject him? Oh, you, you think you're smart? You think you have a better way? No. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, what? As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He, he's talking about this one 
in Hebrews. He's talking about Jesus Christ who is in authority, who's on the throne right now. That I've set my king there, my anointed one, my priest, my priestly king. <coughs> I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Christ owns it all. He's an authority. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what's the message? And what really should we preach to ourselves and to others? Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers in the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. By contrast, and, it, and Psalm 1 and 2 go together, by the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the message. You see, it's a message of hope. You can take refuge in this Holy One, in this King of glory, who is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. I think also this pictures... I'm never going to get through all this. <coughs> you have to come back next week. It not only pictures his advocacy... I mean, I meant to say his authority. It also pictures his advocacy that we should note as well, this being at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because of who he is, he is an advocate on our behalf. That's the imagery of this priestly king. The one who has all authority, you're, you're going to the source when you go to Christ. He would be our advocate. No other mediator. By the way, no other priest here on earth. I had a guy ask me that. What, what's the deal with the difference between priest and preacher? He asked me what I did, and I said I was a preacher. What's all that about? And I got to share with him a little bit about the gospel, as you can understand. It was enjoyable. I'm thinking about him now and praying for him. That he would see the king of glory. He was kind of dumbfounded about some of the responses. And, and I saw a light of, of, of hope. And so I'll pray for this man in days to come. But the point is that we, we, we haven't advocate who is our priest I'm not your priest I don't have authority Christ has all authority I'm merely a, a servant of him and a steward of what he has given and, and, and it's my role is just to tell you about him about Christ this is why I don't try to manipulate people into anything I just preach Christ and call you to him and call you to seek forgiveness 
and assurance ultimately through him. Christ is our advocate, and that is where he is now in all authority on his throne right now in a mediatorial sense for his people. Listen how John the Apostle puts it in one of his epistles, 1 John chapter 2. I'll read it for you. <coughs> My little children. And, and I like the way he says that in a fatherly way. He would have been an elder at this point. I do think he did return to Ephesus and, and, and as a senior there within that group and wrote this. I, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Any sin that's going to be atoned for in any nation, any people, any tongue will come through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is our advocate, and he's on the throne even now. Hebrews chapter 4, if you're in Hebrews, this will be an easy place to find. We've mentioned this before, but just to put it in the expression of the way the preacher in Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest, Hebrews 4.14. He has passed through the heavens... The imagery is in the holy place. Who, who is that? Jesus, the Son of God. Then let us hold fast our confession. That's our advocate. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then do what? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy Find grace to help in the time of need. This is Christ. He is one who is seated on the throne of God with all authority and as our advocate. And on this throne, back to chapter 8, it is called a throne of majesty. It is a majestic place and it is said to be in heaven. This throne of God for which only God has the right to be seated. Christ is there. He is on the seat and he has invited those to be united with him and there is a sense, beloved, that we are then in union with him and seated as well. Not that we would have all authority. We have the authority of Christ. We have the advocacy of Christ. But we also have this union with Christ in which we are then in union with him and settled as well. I'll read it for you if you want to turn. Ephesians chapter 2, 
in verse 5, Paul would give this doctrinal concept about the, this very throne of Christ. In Ephesians 2, 5, it says, we, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ made us alive together. By grace you have been saved. And then what? Raised us up with him. That's our union with him and his resurrection. And, note here, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. R.C. Sproul comments on this. <clears throat> Paul teaches a union between Christ and those who come to trust him so that what is said of the Redeemer can also be said of the redeemed. This is where the security of the believer is seated with him in glory. We'll still be creatures. We're not going to be Christ. But our union with him pictures this idea of our rest in him and our assurance in him in, in reigning with Christ. In fact, John will talk about that as, as well. That he has made us in Revelation 1. He has made us a kingdom of priests to God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. This seat is said then to be in, in heaven. Verse 2 in chapter 8 the minister in that day went to a holy place that was set up by man and not by the Lord. The tabernacle and then later the temple, they were put up symbolically to present a, the fullness of God's glory. It was the innermost court in which only the priests had and the high priests had access to but once a year. It had a veil, as I mentioned, hidden from public viewing. But here in our text, it emphasizes the fact that this is not real. It was only symbolic. The fullness of God's presence could never be contained in a tabernacle or a temple. Solomon mentions that in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. But Christ goes into a holy place, which is said to be true. It is not the sense of true versus false. That's not the comparison. The, the idea is that which is actually real. Everything else is symbolic. The real is Christ the real is in the heavenlies. And I'll just finish with this and pick up next time. Hebrews 9, 24. You're not far from it. He's going to go on and explain what he means by this in greater detail. And I encourage you to read through chapter 8, 9, and 10. And so here's an advanced look in verse 24 of chapter 9 where he expands on this thought. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God, note this, on our behalf. That's his mediatorial work that is going on right now on the behalf of you and me. You can have the assurance in Christ, in Christ alone, who has all authority over heaven and earth, who continues to be your advocate and does so from the majesty on high and the promise that you will be with Christ forever. That is the true. That is Christ. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for Christ. You did love the world. You displayed your mercy and grace in sending the Son to take on human flesh to live among us, to die and atone for our sin, to rise triumphantly from the grave because the Holy One cannot be corrupted, and beyond that, to ascend on high and to function now in a mediatorial work on our behalf appearing very in the presence of God in, on our behalf, even now. I pray for myself and I pray for your people that our faith and trust in Christ would be expanded. Certainly we can't expand it to the degree that it actually is, but to the degree that we can comprehend that incredible love and grace, mercy, and faithfulness. May it cause your people to be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think on these things and respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you today. Father, I do pray we would get the point that indeed we in Christ have such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll stand and turn to 663 in our hymnals. Oh, church arise, 663.
Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now. Amen and amen. We're dismissed. Thank you.